Welcome to Powder Keg Igniting Startups, episode 23 with Jeff Leventhal. He's an experienced software entrepreneur and CEO with a 5X track record for starting and exiting software companies. But now he's a venture partner at Bold Start Ventures in New York City and is also the co-founder and active CEO of WorkRails. Needless to say, this conversation is very interesting. I am your host, Matt Hunkler, and I am the founder and CEO of Verge, which is a network of local communities with global reach for tech entrepreneurs, investors, and top talent. Each guest has their own powder keg full of raw skills and talents that have ignited their startups and fueled their growth. These are their stories. You can find me on Twitter and on Instagram at Hunkler, and that's H-U-N-C-K-L-E-R. And what I want you to do is let me know how Verge, Powder Keg, and I can help you with your entrepreneurial journey. You can also find all of the transcriptions, the show notes, all the links to everything we talk about in each and every episode, including this one. And of course, you can subscribe to make sure you don't miss a single thing. This week's episode of Powder Keg is brought to you by Developer Town. These guys have been friends of ours for years. They've helped so many startups take their ideas to market, gain traction, and build and grow and meet customer needs. But something you might not know about Developer Town is that they actually help enterprise companies move like a startup. Corporate innovators often work with Developer Town to explore software solutions that support their business needs. And now the cool thing is Developer Town leverages all of their years working with startups and they can help companies better understand the viability of potential software solutions, apps, uh, products that they're doing uh, digitally and quickly bring them to market. Developer Town's created this proven sprint to market process so that large enterprises can move like a startup. You can find out more about Developer Town, read up on them at developertown.com slash powder keg. That's Developer Town, all one word, powder keg, all one word. Again, that's developertown.com slash powder keg. Developer Town, start something. Our guest today is serial entrepreneur Jeff Leventhal, who has one of the best energies I've ever been around. Now, I know that sounds a little bit out there, but he really does have some kind of X factor. See, Jeff is a builder of companies that are market-moving businesses, and he has successful exits, including OnForce, Spinback, and Work Market. But he currently is the CEO and co-founder of WorkRails, which is a software platform for professional services. But Jeff's story is so cool because it's full of great entrepreneurial knowledge from the trenches, and it's packaged in these just amazing stories from early childhood wins to some of the most common traps that many entrepreneurs face. Jeff packages it all in really, really great stories. The other cool thing about Jeff is that he's also an active investor in over 20 startups. So he brings a unique perspective as someone who wears both the CEO hat as well as a venture capitalist hat. You're going to love this guy, so let's just get into it. Let's set this thing off. First of all, welcome to the show. Thank you. Appreciate it. Can you tell us where we are right now? So today, we're at the Workbench headquarters in New York City. Workbench is a enterprise software community. It was started by a gentleman named John Lair, and it was started as a fund, and it was started as a place for entrepreneurs to explore their business ideas um, and get validation for their ideas, potentially raise money, meet investors, um, meet like-minded professionals that are working in the same environment, solving similar types of problems. And so it's a community more than anything else around enterprise software in New York City. That's really cool. That's cool that like a niche like that has something as big and expansive as this. 
Yeah, exactly. Well, I know your tech career goes back 20 plus years. That's right. I imagine there wasn't anything quite like this when you got started. You know, in 1990, when I landed here in New York City, there were obviously a number of software companies. Um, I actually had the fortunate uh, opportunity to work for one of them. It was called Information Builders, and still a fantastic company today. They build middleware applications. They build Focus, BI applications, and it was a thriving, great business in New York City. And it was an enterprise software company in 1990. Wow. What did you join that company to do? So software development, yep. um, and it was a time in my life where I was in college, but um, economics and resources and things that were going on in my life dictated that I was better off leveraging my self-taught software development skills than finishing college. And so my personal circumstances pointed me in the direction of getting a job instead of finishing college. You know, those technology skills, you know, they are transferable and they're usable in lots of environments. And um, uh, I ended up in New York City at Information Builders, uh, building software in 1990. What was that decision-making process like for you to make that decision to quit college, which I, I imagine wasn't a small decision in and of itself? It wasn't a decision. Right? <laughs> okay, so fair enough. It was, uh, <laughs> um, it, it was just uh, circumstantial yeah. uh, more than anything else. But, you know, when you're living through something, um, it's very different than looking back and reflecting on it. And so living through it, it felt like all the right natural things for me to do based on the things that were going on in my life. And so it was, it was a series of obvious choices for me. And I had the opportunity to sit down with somebody on my team recently, and he said to me, hey, I'm, I'm three-quarters through college. Should I finish it or not? You didn't finish, Jeff. You're successful. Why should I? And you know, I went through a whole story about wiring and circumstances and timing, and I don't think that there, you know, I think that there are the right reasons to leave college, and there there are the wrong reasons, but they're very personal, and each person needs to really think through for themselves. I knew I was wired in a way that it wasn't going to change me. What I needed to learn to do what I wanted to do wasn't going to come to me through a college experience. Mm -hmm. And so for me, when I was you know, thinking about my future, when I had the opportunity to get started or really the requirement to get started, it, it all felt good. And my advice to this person was, you've got to really think about your internal wiring because you will close a lot of doors by not having college, but you may learn a lot of things about yourself and uh, closing those doors may force you to leverage skills inside of you that you didn't even know you had. And it, it may bring out something inside of you that's really special. So, you know, go home and really think about your wiring. I love that way of like thinking through it. Sounds like someone with a technical background, how they might describe, you know, your internal thought processes and yeah, I mean, internal wiring is is a great phrase for that. What are some of the things that you do or have learned to do to help better hone in on what your internal wiring is now and what it's telling you to do next? I'm an entrepreneur, mm -hmm. and I didn't I didn't call myself an entrepreneur up until a couple of years ago, and. You know, this is 26 years in the making. This is five companies later, a billion plus dollars in exits, you know, lots of venture capital. And I didn't even think about calling myself an entrepreneur. I have a lot of respect for the word. And so, you know, what I do, you know, is, is something that feels natural to me. It's, you know, is it a creative process? Is it a, um, you know, it, it's, it's never for the money, right? It's, it's about solving a problem. And I feel, you know, in looking and going through my day, there are a lot of problems you encounter. And then there are just certain ones that I'm interested in solving. And so if that's what an entrepreneur is and that's what I am, you know, that is how I think of myself now, finally, after 26 years of doing this. Oh, five plus exits, all really impressive exits. I had a chance yeah. to do a little research before we, our conversation. Thank you. One, congratulations. That's huge. Two, 
how do you decide what problems you're going to solve? There are a lot of problems out there. Yeah. And I imagine you see a lot of them. Are you collecting those somewhere? And then if so, how do you then decide which one or a couple of ones to go and aim your focus at? My life's work has been at the intersection of human capital and technology. And for some reason I was always fascinated by companies early on in my life, I mean really early, as a young kid, looking at companies that had low employee counts but really high revenue. Mm. And like, wow, how are they delivering such productivity with such a small team? This is you as a kid talking like this. This is, this is reading the top 1,000 companies in Forbes magazine yep. and looking at the employee count column versus the revenue column. Yeah, I know and exactly what you mean. I did the same yeah, thing. But like, how did, you know, this, this company has 2,000 employees and they're doing 10 times the volume of this other company with a much bigger base of employees. And so that, that was really interesting to me. I had built a software platform that allowed companies to identify problems using a software platform. And when they identified these problems, they had a hard time of solving them. And so to me, you know, it was kind of like, well, don't you just call up a service company and they show up and they go and fix the problem for you? And um, it didn't work that way naturally. You know, they called a company, the company would try to find somebody. Uh, I became fascinated with this logistics problem of getting the right people to the right place at the right time to perform a service. And the only way to really do that was to apply technology to each step of that process. And so my life's work has become making those processes better for both, and for, really first and foremost for the, for the person performing the work. If you can do that properly for that person, the outcome of that work is gonna be amazing. And so each of my companies has been an iteration or an inspiration from solving that problem. What were some of the big breakthroughs and, and ahas without maybe giving away some of the secret sauce? What, were the, what was the secret sauce in some of those early companies where you saw that intersection of technology and human capital and said, ah, if we just approach it in this way, that's gonna give us the edge that we need to compete and dominate this marketplace. Yeah, you know, I think, I think of that in the context of the way you think about the car that the Flintstones drive, mm. right? And so they've got this car, it's got almost no roof, no windows, and no motor, right? It's just feet running along. And I look at, a, I look at building software in a similar way, right? And so it's like, you, you know, you can start out with a basic framework to solve a problem, but there's gonna be a lot of things that are gonna get bolted on to that framework as you learn by listening to clients. But then as you can learn by listening to customers, all the nuances to how somebody should show up, when they should show up, why they should show up, how a person wants to receive work, when they can do work. And by listening, you know, two ears, listen twice as much as you speak, by really listening to what the clients are asking for, you can actually develop a product, you can address a very, very large problem. So, you know, I believe in putting something out there pretty quickly yep. and getting a lot of feedback. And it's not that I believe a customer should necessarily drive your roadmap but I believe you've got to listen to the market that you want to address with your solution very, very carefully. So don't build too much, don't box yourself into a corner, get something out there, get in front of people, socialize it. I'll tell you one other thing about that is that I was at a trade show in Las Vegas, I specifically flew out, I had this new idea, I wanted to really build an online marketplace for solving work problems. Nobody had ever really applied jobs to a marketplace before, this was in late 1990s. And so I went out to the PC Expo trade show in Las Vegas and I said, I gotta go talk to people in this industry and try to understand how they solve these problems. And so I literally went to every single booth. Wow. And, I, and naturally at a trade show, people say, well, what do you do? And so I, I pitched the concept of what I wanted to do literally a thousand times over the three days. You know, each booth, I knew I'd get asked that question and I wanted to just see how the concept would resonate. Well, I have software that helps people show up and fix things. You're, you know, you're building technology. Do you ever have to get people in the field 
to fix things. And they, well, yeah, we do it. Well, how do you do it, right? And so I would say something, and they would look at me strangely, and I, I would know, okay, let me, t let me change that a little bit for the next time. And so over the course of three days, I actually ended up with a really good framework on how to build this software. And so it was incredible market research, a thousand potential customers in one spot that I got to pitch over three days and, and actually leave with a great business plan. That is an awesome sort of trial by fire, almost like customer development crash course. Market research, <laughs> yeah. focus group, these things cost a lot of money. But uh, that trade show was free to attend. I had to pay for the hotel room at the Mirage and get myself across the street and that was about it. That's incredible. What, what, do you remember that specific pitch? And when I say that specific pitch, it sounds like it changed quite a bit. Were there key moments when you changed one thing and it just changed the way the conversation was happening? I don't, I don't remember the actual specific things, then, but here's what I do remember. I printed business cards with no name or phone number, just a web address. And the web address at the time was computerrepair.com. And it was interesting to me, one, how I would introduce myself, but you know, almost immediately they would forget your name. So they were looking on this business card that I had handed them for my name. And they're like, they would say, there's no name on here. I, and I would say, yeah, just go to the website. You don't need to call me, right? Just you know, go to the website. And uh, that was a little bit impersonal. You know, that was something I walked away with. Okay, I got I to gotta have a business card with my name on it. Right. I can't just have the website URL <laughs> and hope people are going to just go there. Um, and so it, it's not lost on me that in selling anything, there's still a bit of a relationship that matters. Yeah. I mean, even at Amazon, you know, I guess everybody feels like they know Jeff Bezos a little bit, right? Yep. And, you know, there's a brand behind that big machine. Absolutely. That the, the pitching process, I think, is an interesting one because it's something that, whether you do it naturally or it's a learned skill, entrepreneurs have to develop that ability to pitch. Do you think that that's an innate quality that entrepreneurs have, or do you think it's more of a learned skill? You know, I'm going to guess, you know, more of a learned skill, and I, I, would, I would think, though, true entrepreneurs, and, I, and, I, and again, I use that word entrepreneur very, very selectively and carefully. I, I think an entrepreneur is somebody who actually creates value. You know, if you're going to open up a dry cleaner, I'm not sure that that's value creation. I think that's just exchanging one job for the other, right? Um, entrepreneurs are people who truly create value. How do you define value? One plus one is four. You know, how do I take a certain list of uh, ideas, mix them up with another list of ideas from another industry, and all of a sudden these two things have converged and something much better has come out of it? Do you have a specific metric that you look at? Is it market cap? Is it revenue? Is it employee count? I don't have a specific metric that I look at, but I have a framework that I think within. Can you talk me through that? Yeah, it's the idea, the team, the product, the first day you sell it, and cash flow break even, and then the exit. Okay. And so each of those are value creation moments. And those moments in a business can happen over the course of 10 years. They can happen over the course of two years, even a year sometimes. But when you have an idea, you've created value, maybe in your own mind, right? But Yesterday you didn't have that idea. Today you saw this problem. You have an idea on how to solve it. You know that there's some value to that. It may not be a lot of value. Maybe a huge amount of value, right? But there's value to that idea. And then if you can actually, and I put team next, but if you can actually convince some other people this is a really good idea and they should yeah. give up what they're doing, there may be a little bit more value to what you're doing, right? But between that idea and getting ready to sell somebody else to come along and perform this idea with you or build this company with you, you've created some value that if you can actually convince people to join you. I mean, these people are going to be smart. They're in the industry potentially. They're giving up something else in this opportunity cost. So I'm looking at that as, okay, this guy had a great idea and he's convinced three really smart people to sign up and do this with that person. And then can that team of four people now sit in a room and build a product, 
right? And yeah. so, but everything in between these value creation moments is an absolute slugfest. Yeah. It well, is a pitch too, right? Like pitching someone to join you on this crazy adventure. Yeah. Do you remember the first time you convinced someone to join you on a, on a venture? I do. I do. Um, Who was it? What was the business? I, it, this was in high school. Okay. Um, early, you know, high school. And uh, in the neighborhood that I had lived in, there were a lot of, there were a lot of, there was a lot of new construction. And so when you go to a, a neighborhood and you, you see this new beautiful model home, um, it's got all these bells and whistles and features. When you actually buy it, there's no rear deck. There's no, there's a, there's a lot of things in that model house that you don't get in the yep. one you buy. <laughs> and so all this new construction had gone up in my, in, in the area that I lived. And um, I was like, all these people need decks. None of them have decks. And I, you know, I, didn't, I didn't know anything about deck building, but there's the problem, right? You know, these people need decks. And I'm going to go door to door and I'm going to go and sell decks. So you had a good idea. So, so, so the, or what you thought the idea was idea. presented to me. Yeah. Lo and behold, somebody, somebody said, well, in fact, yes, we do want to get a deck. Can you, you can build this one. I'm like, absolutely. I can build you one. Tell me what you want. I took some notes. You know, we, we measured out their backyard. I then went to the bookstore and I bought the Time Life Home Improvement Series books on how to do these things. So you had no context for building decks. You just knew decks None. needed to be built. Zero. Yeah. And so uh, it was a 26 volume set. I went to D. I went to the deck section. Right? <laughs> I started to learn how to do this. I got a deposit. I ordered the lumber. It got delivered. So far, everything was going pretty well. I skipped over a bunch of steps like getting licensed or insured or incorporated. But uh, I had this company called Long Island Decks. And um, there we are. There I am building a deck. And so first day comes, I got my pole digger. I'm digging holes for the posts, you know, I'm pouring the concrete and it's a lot of concrete and it's a lot of posts and I come back the next day and they're all crooked in a lot of concrete. And I, I'm like, I was excited about it. So I'm like, I'm going to put extra concrete in. I, I want this to be good. And so I come back and all the posts are crooked. And so I'm like, oh, this, this is not good. I'm looking out of the car and I bought, I, so I bought the car for 500 bucks. I rode my bike. I saw this car on the side of the road for sale. I rode my bike to the car. I didn't have a license. I bought the car. I drove it home. I put my bike in the back of the car. <laughs> my parents are like, what is this in the driveway? I'm like, I got a car. Um, That's awesome. So I'm sitting in this, in, this, in this station wagon where most of the car didn't even work. And I'm looking and I'm like, all right, this is a problem. And uh, I, I, I pull out the book on my front seat and I'm like, I'm going through. I'm like, what did I do wrong? And the wife comes out. She's like, my husband wants to talk to you. She hands me the cordless phone. And he's like, if you leave now, nothing bad will happen. He's like, it's clear you have no idea what you're doing, right? He's like, just leave the wood and just leave the project and nothing bad will happen. I was like, all right, I get it. No problem. It's your wood. Good luck getting this fixed. I'm sorry. And uh, got to get out of jail free card. But I, but I actually figured out what I did wrong. And so I convinced this guy in my um, high school, I'm like, you don't understand. Everybody needs these decks. They're actually, I, I figured out how to do it. They're actually not that hard to do. I know what I did wrong. Do this with me. So this didn't dissuade you, this, this first failed no. project? No. That's good. So his name was Scott. Uh, he's a very successful lawyer, and uh, he lives on the West Coast today. And Scott and I went, to, uh, he went on to build a very, very nice business, uh, building and maintaining and power washing decks over the next three years. And ultimately, we sold the business, um, and it was a great success story. So, so what was the pitch? Frame the pitch for me. Do you remember uh, when you first talked to Scott about this idea? It was, was it more about like, this is the opportunity here. People are going to be buying decks from somebody. It may as well be us. We can do this. This is a great summer job. You know, power washing is a great thing to do in the summertime. What, what better choice do we have? Let's go do this. And uh, I got to tell you, we had, we had a blast. We, we ran an ad in the paper. We were giving out estimates. We were driving all over the place. I and mean, we built a real business. And we had five people working for us at any given time. Um, we learned a ton. 
That's really cool. Yeah, I have all the photos and estimates and all, you know, the copies of the estimates at home still. I take a lot of pride in looking at them. Did that business have the that last stage of value creation, the, the exit? So yeah, so the business was successfully sold. Um, I think it was like 120 grand. Nice. Um, so, and it's still in business today. So no way. really proud. I get to drive by with my wife. She has the same story every time. My kids see that. Like, there it is, kids. <laughs> That's the company that bought my business. They're still in business today. That's so really cool. awesome. Every company I've started is still in business. Wow. Okay, so now, now I want to I wanna dig in a little bit on the pitch because clearly you've got some practice at the pitch if you've been doing it since you were in high school. Uh, five companies later, you've invested in a lot of companies as yeah. well. What makes a good pitch? One, it depends on who you're selling and, and why you, you know, and, and I'm assuming you're talking about convincing somebody to come work with you. Sure. Look. It could also, be, it could also be VC. Let's, let's dig into VC because that's such a, a VC angel investor pitch yeah. uh, because that's such a critical point in the life cycle of a company. It's where they either going to continue to sputter along or fail or really take off if it's a venture-backed or yeah. backable business. Yeah. Talk me through that pitch. How do you first decide who you're even going to pitch to? Yeah, so look, if you want to raise money from venture capitalists, um, there's literally thousands of firms. And so if you're building a software company, don't pitch a VC that invests in biotech. Right? So, so make sure you know, the firm you're pitching um, actually invests in your space. A lot of people actually don't do that homework. Uh, they, you know, they think VC... So read uh, the website. Yeah, read the website. Read about the partners. And, and again, if you don't have a clear, concise way of um, getting yourself to at least $100 million of value, VC may not be the right choice. Yeah. There's a lot of money in VC today. There's a lot of pressure for returns, and there's a lot of pressure to take a lot of capital in a business that has a really good opportunity. But if you can't really see how this becomes worth $100 plus million, VC may not be the right way to go. But if it is the right way to go, and you, you think you've got a tiger by the tail here, and you can build something big, one, make sure you're pitching somebody that, that's got knowledge and expertise in your space. Number two, make sure to really articulate the market opportunity that's in front of you and how you're going to actually be able to address that market. Number three, demonstrate how you, this is the perfect team to back for this market opportunity. I mean, this is the, if you're going to back a team, this is the team to back. This, and, and why this is a team to back. Either you've learned something special or you've done something before or this team has worked together before and there's no team risk and they've got domain expertise. But that VC most likely is looking at a few companies within the same ecosystem and they're going to probably just pick one. And so really why is this the right team to go figure this out? Mm. When you're looking at that team, you mentioned some things like domain expertise or prior work history. Yeah. What are some of the other things that are positives and then on the contrary what are some of the like red flags for you where you're like eh, this, this yeah. could be we could be in for a rocky ride if we invest so um you know one you know are these entrepreneurs prepared to chew through brick walls yeah right you know can these do these people really have what it takes to you know and i look at it in the context of physical financial and mental strength mm. like when you're a big company everybody takes your call when you're doing a startup nobody wants to hear from you right like be prepared for people to tell you your idea sucks Nobody wants to hear about it, and they hang up and go take another call. Right? Like if you can't handle that, this may not be something you want to sign up for. Physically, you know, just the sheer amount of work you're going to do to pull this thing off is enormous. Right? And financially, you need to not want. Right? Like if you're a materialistic person and it's more important to you to go lease a nice car and do all these other things, like you need to sign up for economics that are really, really stringent and tough. Right? You don't want to put yourself in a position where you've got lots of bills and expenses and obligations and then go try to pull off a startup. Like you're setting yourself up 
for, for a hard time. So I want to see that somebody's got the physical, mental, and financial, and financial, not financial strength. They're just not suckers for wanting shit. <laughs> <laughs> right? they, you know, they're going to just be able to not have their back against the wall and do what they want to do. And when you have backs against the wall, you don't always get to do what you want to do. So those, I look for those three things also. One other thing is, you know, like early on, I would take guys out and I'd say, all right, I want to see if you can pick up that girl. You know, I'll introduce somebody for a sales job. And, I, you know, if you can't sell yourself, you're not going to be able to sell my product. Yeah. Right? Like I want to understand somebody's confidence in in a room like that, and in a cold environment like that. If you can't sell yourself, you're not gonna sell anything else. Yeah. Right, so I wanna see that people have the innate strength. You should know pretty well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Especially if they're uh, self-reflective and yeah. figure so out. Yeah, so those are some of the other attributes yeah. that I think are the pillars of a great entrepreneur. You mentioned um, physical strength. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I know you're a soccer player. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about some of the parallels you see between uh, sports, soccer, physical strength, and financial business uh, strength from a, from a model standpoint? Or are they completely different things and it's just this is an outlet and this is business? And I, I haven't really given a lot of thought to the convergence of entrepreneurship and playing sports. I guess you can draw some analogies around team, mm -hmm. but I don't see that because entrepreneurs kind of, you know, I think they're more individual sportsmen. You know, they've got, they've got a beacon that's driving them. Um, not everybody's always sure why it's driving them. You're, you may not even be sure what's driving you, but um, I haven't really thought a lot about the convergence of team sports and entrepreneurship necessarily. But when I think about physical strength, I think about it in the context of you're just not going to sleep a lot, right? <laughs> right. And so when you, when you do get a little bit of time to yourself, you know, you better use that time carefully, be healthy, set yourself up for success, don't eat junky food, yeah. and make sure that uh, you know, you've given yourself the best advantage by being healthy and smart about those kind of things uh, so you can execute properly. So that obviously being in that physical state is going to allow you to go from pitch to pitch, have the door slammed yeah. in your face over and over again, stay yeah. up late preparing a deck. And, and I'll share a story with you about the mental side of it. Like people are going to tell you your product, you know, two little stories. One is I hired this executive from Eula Packard once and he's amazing. I said to him, I go, and this is, you know, we were first getting started, you know, this is like his first week work and I said, you know, three quarters of your Rolodex aren't going to call you anymore. He's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, well, you know, you're a Yule Packard. When you call people, they take the call. They call you back. They're interested. You know, you're a big company. They go, nobody knows who we are. When you call them, you know, you're going to see that 25% of that, those people actually like you, right? And the rest of them were there for Yule Packard. That was hard for him to really comprehend. But uh, in high school, I used to write poems and songs and things like that. And I would share with people. And people were like, oh, that song's terrible. Right? Like, who would, who, that song's terrible, right? So one day... I took the song, the, the lyrics of a Paul McCartney song, and I wrote them down. I'm like, what do you think of this song? And they're like, that's terrible. Nobody's going nobody's gonna, to nobody's gonna like that song, right? And that taught me to stop really listening to feedback and really follow my own. Because I, was like, I said to myself, how can all these songs I'm writing be bad? Yeah. How can all these things I'm putting together not make sense to people, right? But people are very happy to be negative on you. Absolutely. And so, so I was like, all right, I'm going to take, take these good lyrics, I'm going to present them to, to the same friends. And uh, uh, they were like, oh, that's terrible. I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm good now. Now I get it. That's interesting because it, it, on one end, you've got sort of the don't believe everything you hear because people just want to criticize things yeah. uh, innately. Yeah. Uh, but then on the other side, your guiding light in the early days is what are customers saying about this product? And, yeah. and what is your feedback? Yeah. Um, how do you differentiate between, oh, this, this person's just a hater versus this person... 
uh, is just trying to help make the product better. Well, look, I think if you're in a customer meeting, they took the meeting for a reason. Yeah. Um, either they took it because you know, you've got a friend that they respect and that person respects you and, you know, they want to hear what you have to say about something that's important to them. They're sitting in a seat where they, you know, you know, one, they'll lay out what their strategic initiatives are and what they want to do. And just understanding that is really important. So even if you don't walk away with great product feedback, you're going to walk away with good industry feedback. You're going to look, walk away with perspective on how somebody in your ecosystem perceives this industry, what's important, what's not. But you're, you're walking away from a meeting with somebody who's got a point of view in a business that you want to be in. And so that alone will start to give you a vibe. You know, there's a very big difference between thinking about business and being in business. You know, it's like, oh, I'm going to build a great payment system. That's really great. That sounds awesome until you meet with a bank, <laughs> right? And then, then they'll come up with the 1,000 reasons why you're not going to build a great payment system. Yep. But it's important to get that perspective. I'm not saying don't do it for those 1,000 reasons. I'm saying it's really important, though, to get that perspective. So the, the vibe, I think, is interesting, right? Yeah. Because you've definitely got a vibe about you as an entrepreneur, as, a, as an investor. Do you think consciously about that, the, the vibe and sort of energy that you have when you go into a pitch, whether it's a pitch to a potential teammate or a potential employee, or it's a pitch to an investor? I don't, because I really, you know, I, I sell what I believe in, and I'm excited about it for something that I see. And so I think the way it comes off is genuine. Yeah. And that's not something I try to make happen. It's just something that happens for me. And when I pitched those thousand vendors at that trade show, not every one of those mini conversations was great, right? But uh, you know, you start to figure out what works, what doesn't work, what makes sense. Where you know, I have some ideas you know that I think are really amazing. So a VC was like, "Well, what else do you think about this industry?" And I'm like, "Well, okay, you want you want to open up that Pandora's box? Here's what I think." <laughs> is going to really happen in like 10 years. And they were, like, they were, they were just silent. You know, they thought I was crazy. Really? Right? After 10 minutes. So, so you have to learn to, when you really want to share everything, and there's a point of vulnerability in being an entrepreneur. You know, like I look at my business plan as a work of art. The same way a musician looks at a song or an artist looks at a canvas, my business plan is my canvas. And there's vulnerability when you show it to somebody. And so an artist, some artists don't want to show all their work. You know, their final, they don't want to show what they have because you might be like, oh, that, that's, you know, you, you're going to have an opinion on it. And so they want to showcase it a certain way. And you have to learn to do that with a business plan also. And when you can really be vulnerable with a great investor is when you can really make progress, when you can really kind of get out there and brainstorm on the far out there ideas. And that's a hard point to get to. That chemistry is hard to develop. Has it just come from FaceTime? Um, I think it comes from report. trust. I think it's like in any other relationship. If yeah. you're meeting a new girl, you know, there's a point of where there's going to be trust in that relationship where you can open up a little bit more. And I think the same thing holds true. I mean, entrepreneurship is a very personal experience. Yeah. Right? There are some people who are very comfortable like, okay, what do you think of this idea? Let's go through this. Right? You, know, you can do that. Uh, maybe you know, out of 10 ideas, three are insane. Three make a lot of sense and three are terrible. And I don't know about the last one, but um, it's good to be able to develop those kind of relationships over time. They don't, they're far and few between. Who are some of the relationships in your life that have been influential in the guiding light? I mean, obviously the customer feedback is a guiding light, but who are your mentors that you've had along the way? Uh, is there one that stands out to you as someone that really had a big impact on your career? No, there's not. You know, I feel... In a, I feel that I work a little bit more in a mental silo um, than even I would like. Um, but I think it's, it's some of my personal circumstances. You know, the, you know, the way I grew up, the way um, things unfolded in my life from a personal point of view, it made me the kind of entrepreneur that I am. I mean, 
I, I was very much on my own from a very young age. And so there wasn't somebody I looked to for answers many times in my life. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's part of my wiring, is that yeah. I feel like I have things figured out. I know how I want to get there. And I know what I want to do. And I know the kind of people I want to come along for this journey. But there's not a mentor that I've gone to that I would say, this is my go-to person for these kind of things. Hmm. You know, I feel, I, I, I hope one day maybe that changes for me. Yeah. Um, and I hope I can be a good mentor to other people. But no, I don't have that role in my life. It's interesting. Uh, sort of the solitary, almost like songwriting, poetry writing, yeah. um, and, and the solitary entrepreneurship, there's almost like a correlation there. Um, do you still write poetry or, or songs? Um, you play music? I don't play music. Okay. So, uh, you know, purely, purely a lyricist. In sixth grade, um, I was in chorus class, and the teacher, I remember her name, I'm not going to say it, but I remember her name. And she said, oh, hold on, everybody quiet. I want just this half of the room to sing. And then she goes, I want just this row to sing. And she goes, she points to me, she goes, I just want you to sing. And she goes, do you want to take two gyms? I go, yeah, I'll take two gyms. And that was the end of my musical career. Right oh, then no. And there. Yeah. oh, no. Yeah. That's unfortunate. Yeah. So anyway, that was, that was my music. That's my musical career. But I actually think I would, I would, I would love to learn piano one day. And I, I actually, I love singing. There Not everybody loves me singing, but I love to sing. Absolutely, I, I can relate <laughs> to that, man. I can relate to that. Uh, so no, 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 no musical uh, um, part of my life as as of this moment. Do you listen to music? Yeah. Favorite artist? Um, favorite artist. So so it would be UB40. Oh wow. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah, I love UB. I, I love I love the music. I love a lot of the story about the music. I love the song Higher Ground, mm. right? Because it's about learning. And the key lyric in that song is about the more you learn, the more you realize how little you actually know. And it's a really important lesson. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I, I'd love to learn, um, you know, before we wrap here, I'd love to learn a little bit more about the New York tech scene yeah. and specifically the enterprise tech scene uh, that you're so entrenched in. Tell me about why New York is exciting uh, in the enterprise tech space. I, you know, I look at New York City as... Um, the most natural environment for entrepreneurship to flourish in, right? It's a collaborative community. You've got to get along with people, right? You know, it's just, you can't cross the street in New York City without dealing with people. And so you develop really great people skills just living in New York City. Um, the concept of working and living in the same spot, um, I think, is really important. I think uh, entrepreneurship is a very much a part of your personal life as it is a part of your professional life. I don't think there's a big separation. And I think New York City is, you know, you're living and working kind of in the same place. And I think that's a really important theme. I think the spontaneous interactions you have with people in New York City are really, really important. Yeah. And, uh, and, and communities like Workbench help make those kind of things happen. More software is sold in New York than anywhere in the world. I didn't know that stat. Oh, yeah. And between Boston, Philadelphia, New York, and D.C., I mean, you can sell a lot of software here. And you can develop a lot. You can develop software. I mean, the talent in New York, New York has more colleges than any city in the world, yeah. right? And so, you know, people think Boston has so many colleges. It's a great college town, and colleges overwhelm Boston. But we have more colleges in New York than we do in Boston. We have more people going to school here. And so because of the buying economics and because of the talent community, um, those are two big pillars of entrepreneurship. Cornell decided to open up their campus here in New York City. If you're an ad tech company, you know, you've got to be in New York City. If you're a European tech software company and you want to come to the United States, New York City is the natural place to land and start. It's better than traveling four more time zones. Yeah. So you've got a lot of Europe and Israel coming here. You've got buyers here. You've got Stanford of the East being built. You've got uh, a collaborative community that makes sense. You've got office space that makes sense. You've got housing for everybody. So 
yeah, New York's expensive, but the Bronx costs a lot less. Brooklyn became a viable community. It's now more expensive than parts of Manhattan, but it addresses the young, a younger person demographic. And so there are a lot of elements in the environment that speak to entrepreneurship just naturally. Even if New York City didn't, even if New York City didn't have initiatives to support it, I think it just happens here naturally because of the way the city is built. You mentioned the expense. Are there other challenges that you see the New York tech ecosystem or the enterprise tech ecosystem needing to overcome? No. It's really the expense is the, is the downside. No, no, no. So I don't look at I don't see the expense as the obstacle. Because okay. you say, well, you know, salaries are really high. Look, we used to have to compete with investment banks and Wall Street for great engineers. It's, that's really reversed now. And if you've got a great idea and you can sell some great people on it, you know, they're not only looking for cash compensation, right? There's, there are multiple forms of compensation. You know, WeWork has democratized leasing space and made it really easy. And so the costs of getting in business have, have dropped. And so I don't really look at costs as an obstacle to entrepreneurship in New York City at all. That's great. Yeah. What, what's getting most of your focus then these days when you're walking your commute or, you know, the shower time or the morning coffee time? What's getting most of your cycles these days? So, look, I'm, I'm 46, built a few companies, and uh, I'm dreaming about the eight years when my daughter goes to college and my wife and I have a lot of time to, you know, do more things together, you know, that, that is what I'm personally thinking about. Like, all right, I can build one or two more companies. I can invest in like 30 or 40 more, but then in eight years, I can, you know, uh, I'll be in a different mode. What's, what's at the top <laughs> of that list? the honest answer. Right? No, I love the honest answer. That's, that's exactly what I want. What, what's, Entrepreneurship is no easy walk in the park, I'll tell you that. Definitely not. And, and eight years is, it'll go by like that, yeah. but there's going to be a lot of ups yeah. and downs along the way, I'm sure, if, uh, if you're continuing to be entrepreneurial. Yeah. Um, so what's at the top of the list for, for you and your wife? Bucket list. N- non-suburban living. So city, country. And so do you commute uh, into the city now? So my office is, in, is six miles down the road from where I live, which is okay. in Wood Harbor, New York. Okay. And um, I picked the town that was the, the first stop from Wood Harbor. Right? So, and I picked the building in the town that was the first stop in the town because I think commuting sucks. Yep. And I wanted to, you know, be with my kids. And by the way, I want my team, you know, now that I'm a little bit older and I'm working with a lot of the same people over and over again, and, and they live out in places like this, I wanted to build an environment where, you know, go coach soccer, go coach baseball, go do your thing during the day, right? Kids come to our office. We give them jobs to do, right? You know, they're just as much included in our business as our team is included in their lives. And that's a really important theme in my life now as an entrepreneur, especially, you know, given where I'm at with my age, my demographic, and my peers. Yeah. Um, yeah, so look, you know, there's no one specific thing I think about on a, on consistently on a daily basis, but, you know, what I will say is that entrepreneurship is not a career, cho- you know, you can choose it, it chooses you, right? And it chose me, and I've, and I've done it, and um, it's hard. And so I, I swear this is my last company, and everybody says, there's no way, but you I swear this is my last company, yeah. and in eight yeah. years, my wife and I are going to just be enjoying the fruits of entrepreneurship. That's great. Hopefully get time to uh, take those piano lessons. Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, Jeff, if people want to find you uh, and some of your thoughts on entrepreneurship, uh, how can they find you online? They, they can email me. Okay. Yeah. Um, sure. You know, Jeff at JeffLeventhal.com. But I'm not sure where all my stuff is online, but I've written things and they are online somewhere. Yeah. So, yeah. so find I've, by the way, I've never been a big proponent of promoting myself. Yeah. Right? I think I'm more about the spirit of entrepreneurship and building the business than I am saying, Jeff's the greatest entrepreneur in the world. Um, it's more about the team and the business and the outcome. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to share your experience and expertise 
because there's a lot of entrepreneurs listening and uh, I yeah. speak for them when I say thank you for sharing your experience. Awesome. Thank you for uh, the opportunity to connect. Of course. Thanks, Jeff. Hey, Matt Hunkley here again, and that's it for our conversation with Jeff Leventhal. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I really love his perspective, and just the way he tells stories is great. It makes me want to up my storytelling game. But uh, let me know what you learned. Uh, Hit me up on Twitter or on Instagram. Of course, we'll be publishing a lot of the quotes and extra bonus materials on all of the socials, so make sure you give us a follow there. All the show notes are on powderkeg.com, where you can go to this episode, episode number 23. Uh, All of the notes and timestamps, so you can go to your favorite, juiciest parts of this conversation. Thanks so much for tuning in.